Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, the podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host... My Han Solo to my Luke Skywalker, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? <laughs> what's up? I have never in my life been compared to Han Solo, which makes me feel cooler than I have ever felt at this exact moment. Thank you very much, sir. I made that up on the spot. I almost called you Chewbacca, and I thought that was so crappy. I was like, I was like nobody calls me <laughs> Though- Chewbacca. <laughs> <laughs> Though maybe a better fit? <laughs> I don't know. I appreciate it. I'll be Han Solo this episode. Yeah, I wanted to throw you a bone because, man, podcast is so much better when you are on it. And we're on today. And ever since we started this podcast, Andrew, I don't know if I've even told you this, but Whiplash has always been one of those movies that I've wanted to talk about with you because you are an artist. You are a creator. I'm an artist and a creator. And I think this movie is about creating art and what it means and what it takes and has really interesting things to say about it. Yeah, it is a really good movie. It's a super, like, tight movie. It's actually an hour 45 and doesn't feel like it at all. Um, Great, great movie. Like, I'm so excited to jump in and talk about it. And it's a movie that, like, yeah, like you said, the themes, I think, resonate with the two of us a lot. Um, I hope other people that are listening to this podcast, if you're, like, a musician or an artist or a filmmaker or a writer or a storyteller or someone who, like, creates and that's what you love, I feel like this movie is just so important. I mean, it's like a mirror. It's it's awesome. I'm so excited to, to like dive into it. So I have a few opening questions I want to get to to frame this conversation. One is uh, it's a movie written and directed by Damien Chazelle, and uh, it's phenomenal. This is his feature debut. It was started as a short film and then became a full feature, but he's kind of talking about a similar topic in all of his films. I've not seen First Man. That's a blind spot for me. But I have seen Whiplash. I've seen La La Land, which was my gateway to his work. And I've seen Babylon. And I think they're all three uh, really worth watching and thinking deeply about. Babylon is a mess and uh it's shocking and i probably would not recommend it there are people who listen to this podcast who are already shocked by the movies that i watch and i think babylon would like freak you out so stay away but i do think it is a very interesting movie uh has a lot to say and keeps in with this theme and so my question is this andrew do you like when a director picks one theme and kind of sticks with it. I think of Scorsese, like a lot of his films are in conversation with each other. He does a lot of different type of movies, but they're very much about guilt and sin and crime and redemption. And those are themes that he keeps returning to over and over again. Or maybe there's someone like Spielberg who's like, hey, I'm going to do Close Encounters over here and then I'm doing Munich and then I'm doing Tintin and I'm just kind of telling different stories all over the place. What director is easier for you to connect with? One who's kind of like laser focused in a lane or one who's like, I'm kind of a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So I think that's a tough question to answer because I think both kinds of directors have sort of, you know, their own sweet spots. But I do think it's interesting when you do find those directors, like you said, like a Scorsese or even maybe like a uh, like a Tarantino, like have something on their mind and they just keep returning to that well and talking about it in different ways. And I think if you resonate with what it is that they're talking about or what's on their brain or their heart or whatever, like that little thing in their soul that seems to be driving them to tell stories, if you resonate with that, then you're going to lock in with this director and really like love what they do. Um, I think that maybe one of the reasons this is not a Tarantino episode, but why I go in and out on him is because I think I don't quite resonate with the things that he's in on all, all the time. And so I'll have a film that I'm like, oh, I really like his angle on this this time, but maybe not all the time. Um, I think Damien Chazelle, certainly we're going to get into that, has something on his mind that he keeps returning to. I think with someone like a Spielberg, though, who is sort of trying everything, I think you get like what we talked about in our Fableman's episode, which is sometimes he's going to knock it out of the park. And then sometimes you're like, what's happening here? So um, he's maybe a little bit more versatile, but sometimes you're going to have a bunch of big misses where a director that finds their lane sometimes will stay a little bit more consistent, but maybe not have the same window into a full audience who people would connect with their work. I don't really know, but I like I, I see a, a pros and cons to both, I guess. It seems like one, you know, certain directors, like I think the Coen brothers were just like, 
we're just attracted to different stories and we have different types of stories that we like and we want to tell them. It seems like there are other souls that are tormented and David Fincher seems to me to be like some sort of a tormented soul. Scorsese definitely seems to have a lot of guilt and torment. Um, I love his movies. I, I don't think we've done one yet, which is a crime. <laughs> Who's in charge <laughs> of this podcast? How have we never done a Scorsese film? I know. Um, Come on, man. Get with it. And so we'll do one this year. We will do one. But I think Chazelle, like what, what I love is that it feels like he has to talk about this. It feels like he is wrestling with something deep and dark and heavy and whiplash, maybe no more so than whiplash. And the reason that I wanted to talk about this film also is because man, it goes and goes and goes. And when it ends, it is just a literal like mic drop. It is like, boom, credits, amazing. It's one of my favorite last scenes, maybe in any film ever. And I just wonder for you, like, where do you land on this ending? And how did you feel when it ends? <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, we're jumping right to the ending. I have to say, I felt the like jubilation and pride of both of the characters on screen. Like I was right there with them emotionally and then immediately was kind of like grossed out by the fact that I was and had a lot of questions for myself. <laughs> so I think I felt exactly the way the movie wanted me to. <laughs> Dude, that I mean, we're going to talk over and over about what you just said, but you nailed it, which is like, this is beautiful and amazing. And this is dark and sadistic. And it wants you to wrestle with both those things. Um, and we'll get into that a lot. I mean, I think of other movies like... Uh, Network is one of my favorite films. I've talked about it in several episodes, but that's a movie that ends and I feel similarly of like, wow, that was amazing what just happened. Chinatown has that sort of ending where it's just like breathtaking and so dark and so overwhelming and it makes you wrestle with everything you've seen between. And I think this is in my top 10 endings of all time. Yeah. I didn't make a list. I normally do. But like if you would ask me just on the street, like, hey, Rob, what's a movie that ends just so well? This is in the conversation with any ending ever. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, and I think that is a credit to how tight this movie is and how laser focused it is. Um not to show my hand early, but we uh, often have a category here, which is what is the least meaningful scene? And I don't have an answer on this one because I think every moment of this movie has to be there. Um, and and it is all marching towards this sort of inevitable conclusion that it could actually have ended in a whole bunch of different ways. But this thing is like a, a train barreling towards an ending with no subplots and no distractions. Um, and when it, f when it finally gets you there, right, where it says, this is where we were heading, this is it. Um, it it's, it's a great ending. Like, like I said, it makes you feel like joy and I don't want to say disgust, but like <laughs> joy and trepidation all at the same time, which is a very weird mixed bag to feel, I think. Okay. Well, in the name of tight, let's get right into it. Let's do I it. I want to jump into the categories because I think there's a lot to talk about here and dig into. So first question is this. Um, who's your most meaningful character in the movie? So normally with this category, I I think we try to like break out and not pick like the protagonist because that's obvious. The protagonist is built to be the most meaningful character of a film. So we often try to explore like the best impact character uh, in the film. This film is like, again, laser focused on two people. There are other people that w show up, <laughs> right? But um, th there are almost no characters in this film outside of Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons. Everyone Absolutely. else is a prop. Absolutely. Like, even people you see in multiple scenes are a prop. I mean, J.K. Simmons' character at one point, what's his name, Fletcher? Yeah. F Fletcher at one point admits to using one of the other drummers as a prop. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, I, I think, like, the most beautiful character to me is probably Miles Teller because I relate to him the most, but it's because he's the only option. It's him and J.K. Simmons. They're the only true characters in the movie. <laughs> the reason we're talking about this movie is because of J.K. Simmons. Yeah. He is... <sighs> 
I mean, let's just get right into it with him. I think what's so interesting about this movie is I'm a big fan of the mentor story. I love Rocky as a movie that I've seen a thousand times. Uh, Karate Kid is a movie I've seen a thousand times. Empire Strikes Back, you know, obviously we did a whole episode about. And each one of those movies have this like powerful mentor, this sensei who is going to be tough, but caring and take you through somewhere. And you know that the mentor always has the best interest in mind of its student. You know, you know, Yoda is going to push Luke, but Yoda's always looking out for the best. Mr. Miyagi is going to push Daniel, but he's always looking out to protect and nurture Daniel. Fletcher, you're like, I don't know what this dude's doing. I don't know if he's Satan or I don't know if he's Jesus. And that is one of the core questions in the film that after seeing it 10 times, I still don't know if Fletcher is Satan or Jesus. Well, okay, so... Let's try and answer that question. Okay. And I think what it gets down to is, do you think in that final performance, um, in that last scene, do you think the whole thing is one last test, or do you think it is truly revenge on Miles Teller? I think it's truly revenge. I do too, which I think, to me, makes him Satan. I think if he... And I think in that moment, he has orchestrated the whole third act of the movie in order to shame him and publicly humiliate him in front of I everyone. Do and the only reason he comes around is because he realizes that he has, in fact, created his own Charlie Parker. And so he he gets on board with Miles Teller and like they finish the thing together because he realizes that he's inadvertently won. If his goal in that was to be like was to provide this ultimate test to get Miles Teller over the edge, if that was his goal, it'd be a slightly different conversation, even though I think it's insanely emotionally abusive. And that's kind of the whole point of this conversation is what kind of emotional abuse do artists put themselves through in order to be great. But like, I don't think there's any conversation in which we say he's a good person. I think he's a horrible person, period. But... <laughs> I mean, so another movie we talked about in this podcast a while ago was The Shining. Yep. And kind of infamously, Stanley Kubrick pretty much broke Shelley Duvall to make this movie. And I don't think he was trying to break Shelley Duvall. I mean, I don't know. I've never talked to Mr. Kubrick. Uh, I've just read interviews and that sort of thing. But I just think he was obsessed of like great art at all costs. And I think that's what Fletcher is thinking as well. It's just great art is worth pursuing and it's what I'm giving my life towards. And my life, my goal in life is not to be a mentor. My goal in life is not like the student matters more than the art. It's actually the art matters more than the student. And there's part of me that like resonates and believes in that because I'm just like, man, what it would mean to be able to create a novel that everyone reads forever or a film that everyone watches forever or to be Stanley Kubrick. Like if I could choose to have my career or Stanley Kubrick's career, I would choose Stanley Kubrick's with the caveat of like he might have broken people's brains and hearts and he might have caused several actors to snap and go insane. Um and so I'm like, okay, is that worth it? Is it worth to like actually break and ruin people to create great art? I don't know. I mean, that's what this movie wrestles with to me. I think there's an interesting motivation there and you sort of that you tapped into, which is the idea of what kind of legacy do I want? And I think that that is um, Miles Teller's uh motivation for the whole movie and he talks about it uh, his name is andrew in the movie which is weird, it is. which is why i keep calling him miles teller but uh i think his mo motivation is is that thing if he wants to be the stanley kubrick of drums right yes like that's his whole thing how do i become that how do i become the person that people talk about in the future the rest of my life doesn't matter as long as i have a legacy and as long as i've made a mark I think J.K. Simmons, I think the thing he talks about in that conversation at the bar, I think is really interesting where he's saying that like his his job is to like find those artists and draw them out. And it's 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 his job to like be the procurer of great art for the world. It, it seems like it matters less to him that he's creating anything good, but rather that he's. Um, refining the the best artists so that the world has them. It's this almost more abstract goal um, that like it doesn't seem like he has any 
personal desire to have a legacy of his own so much as he's like in the mind trying to find that gold nugget and he's going to do everything to find it you know it's like a slightly different weird motivation do you believe that about him do you think do you believe that he has no ego uh or his own his only ego is to cultivate the greatness in someone else i think that is his version of ego i think that he is so wrapped up in this like pursuit that he will feel ultimately fulfilled when he does that thing. That's what he thinks his life goal is, which then everything becomes about him. Clearly, he has the biggest ego on the planet, but I don't think it's in this idea of legacy and notoriety that most people's ego is wrapped up in. It's this weird other sort of sadistic version of that. I think one one thing that I love so much about this movie is like we want to pretend in real life that mentors and teachers and people in the industry who are one step ahead of us or who can unlock something are Yodas and Mr. Miyagi's. But I think a lot of them are like Fletcher, bro, where like if you've ever gotten like tough feedback or been around sets or been around writers or different things where it's like oh this person's gonna tear me apart and i don't know if i feel safe and i don't know how to process that like i just think this wrestles with the type of people who most if you're really gonna make it in an industry whether it's music or literature or film or politics or whatever that like echelon top echelon where you gotta like fight your way up and climb your way to the top of the ladder you're gonna come across a fletcher and what that does to you and how it treats you and i just i'm curious about damien chazelle's like own fletcher experience if he has someone like that in his life who was this sort of monster to him or what makes him create this sort of character yeah i i am too i I think that there is like maybe maybe the most meaningful scene I think there's two. It's, this is, isn't not the one I was going to pick, but I'm going to j- jump in here for a second because we're talking about it. Is the conversation that two of them have at the bar where he's talking about Charlie Parker would not have been Charlie Parker if his band leader didn't throw a symbol at his head. Right. And it seems like that is Fletcher's like life's motto. Right. And there and there like like you just said, there is truth to that in the idea of without tough criticism Fletcher in that scene says the two most destructive words in the English language are good job yeah um and I resonated with that so much like I'm a director and I work with cast and actors quite a bit and there are people will ask how they did and I will never tell anyone that the show is a 10 out of 10 yeah I like a first show I will always say it was about a six no matter what um even if it was really good and it's because like we have to keep working if you get complacent like you know and so that is that is maybe giving away a little bit of thing behind the curtain for me but like there i resonated with that idea of the words good job can be so poisonous because it creates complacency so there was like this truth in this moment of what jk simmons was saying yeah it's such a great scene and there's so much of a time bomb underneath it because you know that uh andrew is the character who just cost him his job and didn't really want to he was kind of forced into it but he was so dead and so numb inside uh there's a sequence before that we may not talk about so i don't want to skip past it which is so breathtaking which is like he goes it's his turn to drum his car breaks down or the bus breaks down he rents a car he drives all the way there he leaves his sticks and then he goes runs back to get his sticks and then there's a like he's t-boned essentially gets out of the car and like the terminator walks onto the set just covered in blood and like plays the scene there and that's the abuse that he's willing to take to not lose his job and that he unravels and because of that he ends up and goes and speaks against Fletcher because he did everything he could to keep his job and still lost it and so finally he's so broken that he'll speak to Fletcher but but you just see the backstory and abuse of those two guys in that scene yeah I I remember watching that scene have you ever been in a a situation like that where you're like I will whatever it takes where you're like running to make something happen like just like there's no way yeah I like (laughs) it It is so desperate and I that's what was amazing about this movie is like Everyone's been there before, right? Where you have the job interview or you have the audition or you have this thing that's going to make or break you and something goes wrong that you did not plan for. And there is this like, 
I don't care if I literally die trying, I'm going to do it. And I've never seen it captured better on film than that sequence. No, the moment where he gets T-boned, to me, that was like the end of the scene. I was like, oh, God, where is it going from here? And then when he crawls out of the car and keeps going, I was like, okay, well, he's not going to get there in time. Right. Like he's already late for the performance. So now he's going to have an argument with Fletcher or something. And then he like walks on stage and starts drumming and he's like bleeding. And I was like, what is happening? Like, I thought I knew what that scene was. And then it just kept going. And Fletcher told him before, like, hey, you can just give it up and keep going. Or this is your only chance to ever do it. And he's like, nope, you're not taking my spot. And he gets there and he probably has a concussion. (laughs) The drums are covered in blood. (laughs) You know, he can't even. It's just it's so incredible. So. Yeah, and the other thing that we learned about Fletcher is there's this trumpet player. He, Fletcher has two moments of vulnerability, really, in the movie. And one is this scene at the bar, and the other one is when he tells his whole band, hey, I had this trumpet player who um, was the most beautiful player I've ever had, and I learned that he died in a car accident. And then we actually learned that this trumpet player uh, committed suicide. And part of the reason his backslide or whatever else was because of Fletcher's mentorship and what he did to him. And so we see the mental and emotional health or the mental emotional toll that, that, that this mentorship took out on another young man ending his life. So that to me, I think is a, um, this is sort of out of the categories, but I'd love to just drill down on that for a moment. Cause to me, that is one of the most like, resonant uh this movie has no b plots but if there was a b plot it would be that character that we never see yes um and to me it's the threat that is under this the whole time which is what is eventually going to happen to andrew's mental health right he starts off being shy and then he becomes confident but like there's this brewing trouble that we never truly get there like if the movie ends triumphantly the idea that this other character this trumpet player killed himself undercuts any version of triumph that i think you really realistically can feel correct um and it's to me it was like this really haunting exploration of when you're creating something and trying so hard to do it well and you're so dedicated to that does that thing ever truly make you happy no matter how good it is. And at some point, when does the reality that the thing that you are solely devoted to cannot bring you joy, when does that lead to that level of darkness and um, sort of um, despair, Um, which I think is a very real thing, takes us back a little bit to everything everywhere all at once. But that was a different level of despair come on, brought on from like a different idea. This is the idea of when can a, obsession over your own purpose lead you to despair um i thought yeah, that i mean was, the, know, the really ending meaningful. of this movie really is like <laughs> wow that was the triumph you know it was like the ending of rocky where it's like he did it he triumphed and then it was like that's what he wanted is that what he should have wanted is that what we should have wanted for him like it answers a question question and then it asks 15 more and i think that tension that just keeps i mean what's so great about this movie is the very first scene is fletcher and andrew and andrew's just kind of playing in a playing drums by himself and fletcher stumbles in and kind of has him try a couple things takes his jacket off okay let's see what you got and then andrew's looking down then he looks up and fletcher's gone and it's like okay you had your moment in the sun and you lost it and it was like oh to get that moment back because this is what's true to me andrew is like if you were an artist and you were a creator and you believe in it that much you're like man i will give everything in me i will sacrifice i will sell everything i will give my own mental health to get that moment of greatness back. There are those type of people. And frankly, Hollywood is filled with a lot of them. And it's the reason why we see so many, you know, difficult stories is because maybe there's something that happens in that gene of like chasing greatness that also brings darkness as well. Maybe these two things are just tied together in this way that this movie understands. Yeah. I don't think it answers the question. Like, I I don't think you and I are ever going to, end this podcast with the answer to what is the meaning of this movie. I think this, this movie is simply, it's it's not simply, I think it is actively exploring an almost impossible paradox when it comes to Andrew. I think there's a better answer for JK Simmons character, but when it comes to the pursuit of the thing that you love, right? Like 
is the movie triumphant at the end? It yes and no in almost equal measure. Like, do you want to talk about the ending for a bit? Just like really dive in and talk about that and like the meaning of it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So one of the things that I think is so incredible is that you want two things for Andrew desperately. The Miles Teller character, not me. Um, uh, one is for him to have relationships that matter and are healthy. So for him to, you know, connect with his dad and you know, maybe a girlfriend, though, not the one that he broke up with because she doesn't deserve that. Uh, so you want that for him. So when he's walking to his dad, there's this sense of like, oh, good, he's going to have someone who loves him. Right. But then when he turns around and walks back onto the stage, you have this moment of like, yeah, you're not going to let yourself be defeated. There's this almost equal measure of, you know, like I didn't feel the dread when he turned around and walked away from his dad. I felt good about both directions he was walking. I felt elation. I did not feel comfort in him walking to his dad because I actually felt like we know what's there with his dad, which is him hanging out in an apartment. He and his dad like, hey, I got some raisinets for you. And they're just sad. And like, that's all that's there with his dad. As much as his dad loves him and cares for him, there's no happiness with dad. There's no hope of happiness. And it's maybe like a literal rock in a hard place where it's like he's damned with his dad and then he's damned with uh, Fletcher. And there's no <laughs> there's no way for him to escape. But in that moment, man, when he turns around and is like, I'm not going to let this guy beat me because this guy has been such a bully. He has been Darth Vader and Hannibal Lecter and just as evil as any character ever. And I'm going to like stand up and (laughs) take my moment back. Like I'm cheering for him. I'm rooting him on. And it's so tense, you know, like because what sets up that scene just a moment before is he's like, I know it was you. I know it was you who told on me you're not going to get away with this or whatever he says, you know, like and (laughs) that is so like. It's such a shocking plot twist moment um, with such a simple reveal. Yeah. But like the the joy that you feel of him going back is one that maybe he could achieve the thing he wants. Right. But also that that he won't be beaten by this guy that at this point you despise. Um, right. It's both. But and it's mostly the latter for me. It's mostly like you got to stand up to him. This guy cannot win what he did to you. Right. And so he wins in that final scene. He defeats J.K. Simmons bullying of him in a way that fulfills what J.K. Simmons wants. It's this like doubly diabolical thing. He's J.K. Simmons has put himself in this position in which he sort of controls Andrew either way, which is why it's so emotionally abusive. But what makes that scene so powerful is he goes back and they play Caravan, I think it is. Yep. Um, And so they play that song and then he does it. He nails it. And there's a big cheer and it's like, okay, mission accomplished. And Andrew's like, nope, I'm not stopping there. I'm taking over the show. I'm the conductor now. And he just grabs it and he's like, what are you doing? And you just see... I can't... It's just a dude playing drums. That's all it is for the last five minutes. And it feels as epic as anything I've ever seen in the film. Like, I I don't even understand how it feels so amazing other than it's just so well shot. It's so well performed. And, you know, we're talking, J.K. Simmons won the Oscar and rightfully so. But, dude, Miles Teller is also a star. He's so good. He wasn't even nominated. And I think that's a crime because I I was like, he should have at least been nominated for this role because he's really good. And you just, I mean, I, you feel the blood, sweat, and tears literally in yeah, that like scene when he gives it all. The symbols are sweating. Symbols don't do that, by the way. There's, like, yeah. water all over the symbols, which, like, even if he was sweating, there wouldn't be that much water in the symbols. Like, the, <laughs> the, the visual language on the drum set while it's all happening is amazing. And just the like the white uh, snare drum and drops of blood that are dropping on it. And yeah, it's it's just so. But yeah, I mean, he just essentially goes and this whole sequence where he goes and then you see them warring. And it's just it's such a good performance because it's just looks right. It's just glances at each other. And then finally he goes and he puts his hand down and he goes all the way to the quiet and then he builds it back up. And then he just, you know, (laughs) and then like ends the song. And it's just again, like that whole sequence Dang. Dang, bro. So here's what also makes that sequence for me like amazing and heartbreaking, right? Is he beats him. He starts Caravan, right? J.K. Simmons is talking and Miles Teller starts Caravan on his own. He takes over the the right. show from the jump and he looks at the bassist and says like, I'll count you in, right? And they go into Caravan and J.K. Simmons has to just 
jump back in, right? Because the show's been taken from him. And then all of Caravan is Miles Teller kind of taking over into that crazy solo at the end. And there's a moment in the solo in which J.K. Simmons basically is like, you're the guy, right? You can see it in his eyes. You can see that he is, right? And he comes over and basically gives him his approval, right? He is no longer trying to take the show back from him. He, He basically gives into what Miles Teller is doing and gives him, without saying good job, gives him the approval. Yes. And then when he slows all the way down to the just the single beats, J.K. Simmons takes it back. You can see him. He's 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 like they're like a team as he, as he builds back as Miles Teller like builds back into the next song. J.K. Simmons is excited about what he's doing, but he's starting to like you know do his conductory stuff again. And then Miles Taylor starts to follow him. He starts to do the faster, faster, faster thing, which he goes along with. So he gives him his approval and then takes over again. And it's almost like he's back in the trap of not only him, but of the obsession. And both happen at the same time. In the victory, there's also this imprisonment again. But what's crazy about it is like in the taking over, he lets Miles Teller shine. Yes. Like he's like, OK, yeah. I'm going to take over and I'm going to make you a star. Right. And it is like almost like you're my proudest pupil. Like I always knew you had it in you. Like there is this like, I don't know, the first time I watched it, I was like, maybe maybe J.K. Simmons was a good guy and maybe he wanted the best for him. And he just he saw that in him. And that's why he's pushing him so hard. And then on subsequent watches, I'm like, no, that's not what it's trying to say at all. But it's all there. He, like, you can make any argument. Someone could come on this podcast and say, no, he saw it in Teller. And that's why he, he even says in the bar scene, he's like, the other guys I was using as a prop. Like, I always knew it was you, which I think that's a lie. I just think it's something that, like, I don't know. He's saying to, like, set him up to make him fail again. But, like, I think he's clearly using the red-haired kid, the, the kid he brings in third. I think that kid's clearly a prop. That's true. The other kid is a little bit of like, like for him, he was like, he dropped out and did pre-med. So I guess he didn't have it in him. He like, you know, like th- th- that was his thing is if people quit, then th- then then they're not willing to work hard enough. That's like a part of his litmus test is like if you if you crumble to the emotional abuse, then it's not meant to be. It's almost like a fatalistic thing of like, I'm going to throw everything I possibly can at you. And if that breaks you, then you're not good enough, which is like kind of horror it's it's too much in my in my like it, it, it like obviously that's like sadistic and emotionally abusive but it's 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 taking the idea of how do you refine someone and help them become their best to just an extraordinary level that is awful that's kubrick like you know I was going to give one more most meaningful scene while we're kind of <laughs> we're a little all over the place but I want to like bring it back to that category which is like my most meaningful scene is the scene early on when he brings him in and he's like, Hey, I'm <laughs> the, the psychological torture that he does the whole first sequence where he's like, Hey, why don't you come at 6am? And then he goes, he oversleeps. He rushes to the place. He gets there at six Oh five and it's empty. And then you see it waits until nine o'clock, which is like three hours of like, this is the biggest break that I'm just sitting here and stewing in it. And then he goes, <laughs> has the other guy step up and he's like, okay, I'm going to give you a chance. And then he brings him out in the hallway and he has this conversation where he's like, Hey, tell me about your mom. Oh, my mom was this, but she left my dad. Oh, was your dad a writer? He's like, Oh yeah, he was a writer. Oh, actually he's more of a teacher. What college he gets the whole backstory and he's mining all this information that he's going to use to therefore attack him. (laughs) But in that scene in the hallway, he just says, you know what? Let's just go for it, man, and give your all. And it's kind of like this is what, you know, 90% of teachers in Music America or any teacher would say, right? Hey, just do a good job. Right, right. And then a moment later, he's like, okay, why don't you try? And then, nope, not quite my speed. Nope, not quite my speed. And he's just like messing with him. And then he's finally like, can you keep time? And he goes, one, two, three. And then he's slapping him every time he does it. And when that happened... I mean, it is so shocking and so villainous, but I was just like leaning forward. I was like, this is a thriller, man. Like, I cannot believe what I'm watching right now. Yeah, I mean, so I've seen that scene a bunch because that was like the scene they would play every time that, you know, 
they would like talk about J.K. Simmons and like his Oscar nomination and everything. Like that's like the most iconic scene I think yes. about like of like showing the J.K. Simmons character. So I'd seen that scene actually a couple times, but. I'm trying to think of how shocking that would have been to have gone in the movie, not really knowing where this is going, knowing that this guy's a little off, a little tough, and then just watching that whole scene unravel and realizing the like psychopathy almost of this guy. And it's but it's measured JK... too. Like he knows what right. he's, he's doing it all on purpose. He's not oh, out of control. It's an attack. He's just like <laughs> when he says when uh, Teller starts crying and he's like, oh, please don't tell me you're a single tier guy. And it's just like <laughs> it's such a vicious, funny takedown of him. And he's so witty and funny in it as well. Um, but, yeah, it's like a surgeon of psychological torture of what J.K. Simmons is doing in this movie. Oh, so, yeah, Oscar well-deserved for sure. Um, what's what's your most most meaningful scene? I mean, that's it. That's that's my mo- most meaningful scene is that scene because it lets you know, like Andrew, if he's going to survive, has to somehow give everything, and overcoming this guy is going to be the biggest challenge. And it just raises the stakes so much, and it makes J.K. Simmons such a villain that I was like, you're just little. I mean, Whiplash is such a great name for the movie. It's literally like okay. Uh, you're in for the rest of the movie. So I think that scene is stunning. And I think the scene at the bar is really where the theme comes to life that you were talking about. Yeah, I think so. When I was watching the movie, the, the scene that I locked into that I was going to say was like my most meaningful scene. Um, oh yeah, I think it's really worth mentioning is the dinner table scene. Yeah. With Miles Teller and his dad and all the other characters that you never see again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I felt like that was one of the most relatable scenes and it was the thing that locked me completely into what Miles Teller's motivations are. When, when you see all of that come into relief, um, you know, like he's just done, he's basically done the coolest thing he's ever done in his life. He's got accepted into the best band at the best school in the country. Right. Right. And with that being a singular pursuit, that's the only thing that matters. And so when... His accomplishment is being held on the same level as what are fairly mundane accomplishments. And he breaks and is like, none of you matter, right? When, when yep. he says, but you're division three, when he's talking about the yes. other guy's football thing. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that when you're like sitting around and people are share, sharing stories and you tell them something like really cool that you've done and then someone else shares something? And everyone's like, oh, that's awesome. And you're like, that's not as that's not as good. Like the art thing in you versus the humanity thing. Yeah, it's like. It's like when my book won an award, uh, not to be, but uh, I had a book, I published a book once upon a time, it won an award, and then I was hanging out with, I don't remember who, but it's like, oh yeah, my uncle published a book, and it was like this self-published whatever else thing, and I was just yeah, like, and you, I, was like, I was like, you're not in the same, this is not the same conversation, you did not have a real, I mean, I was just vindictive, you know, like, I didn't say any of that, but I thought it. Um, right. And, you know, because I was, I was like, there's a sense of like, it's, this is not fair. Like what I put and the effort and the energy and the competition I was up against versus what you were against versus like, Hey, you yeah. found someone you paid to publish your book. Therefore they published it. I was like, it's not the same thing, man. And you just feel this like superiority, but you feel it not because you're great, but because of what you had to suffer through and what you had to go through to reach that point. Yes, I think oh, I think it's so well said. So I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are actors and sometimes they'll get jobs that are like equity union jobs, like theaters that are doing like national tours. And the amount of work that it takes to like book these roles at this level with these casting directors on these tours, it takes an insane amount of work. And the number of people that you're competing against together, like it's a huge thing. And I've had conversations where we're sitting there talking and, I'll, and someone else will be like, oh, yeah, I played that role once in high school. Like, it's really cool. And you're like, no, 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 no. That's like, right. <laughs> like you don't understand how right. that's like not even the same thing. And I, I think there is this war. The thing that, that you touched on there is like you've thought all of that because it felt like such a slight to the work that you have put in. But you don't want to say it because there is something gross about telling someone that their accomplishment or what they deem to be an accomplishment for them is not worthy. The the conversation that like the things that Miles Teller said, I have thought those things so many times in, in, in my life. And as he's saying them, I'm like, you're the villain in this scene. You're a bad person. 
Right. I, I think you understand his motivation and the darkness inside him. And it's what this pursuit creates in him, which is why you said his mental health. I, I think the other thing that makes him so defensive there is there are certain things that we hold in higher esteem than others. Yeah. And so, you know, most people know who Peyton Manning and Tom Brady are. They're the pinnacle. They're the Charlie Parkers of, you know, football. But we don't know who Charlie Parker is. And so I think there are certain things that it's like, okay, this career, this achievement really matters. I think mm. that's the other thing that's loaded in that scene is like football really matters. But mm. being a drummer in a jazz band doesn't matter. And sure. so even Division Three football is just as high or maybe higher or people can get onto it because they understand what a football game is where it's like, ah, art's a little more subjective, right? Like being a drummer, like, you know, all drummers are good. Or if you can do the thing, you know, where it's like, no, 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 to do the level that they're doing. And so I think that's what is so interesting about that scene as well. And then the, the, the place where it ends is like, he's such a jerk about it. And they ask him like, hey, do you have any friends? Like they call him out on being like a bad person. And he basically comes back with like, no, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to achieve this thing and I'm going to have a legacy. I'm going to be Charlie Parker, basically. And they're like, who, who is that? Oh, they, they said, like, did he have any friends? And he said, it doesn't matter because we're at a dinner table 100 years later talking about him. And so that war of your accomplishment and what you mean to the world of people who don't have an emotional relationship with you versus what you mean to people who do have an emotional relationship with you. Um, and I think that's why there's to me, there is this pull with his dad and with the girlfriend of he didn't value the time that he had with his dad. That time didn't need to be sad. He chose to make it that way. That's true. He, That's he true. could have engaged. And so there was this feeling to me of if he chose to embrace those relationships, if he chose not to be a horrible person to his girlfriend, right, he could find joy there. But he chose not to. And that was basically the Faustian bargain he made with himself. And that is why I felt like equal parts triumph and devastation in both directions he was walking, I guess. If your art is at the center of your life and it's all that you have, you will find destruction and sadness. Like that's it. Like I feel kind of preachy saying that, but I'm just, I'm just telling you there's nothing there. Um, If that is, if you center your whole life around that sort of pursuit. And I do think that's part of what the meaning of this movie is, is like there was no way for him to pursue the girl or his dad because he didn't have room on his plate for anything else. It was like, all that can be on my plate is this art and this pursuit of it. Right. And if anything else is on my plate, like his, the whole breakup speech that he gives to his, his girlfriend, it it reminded me almost of the uh, opening scene of uh, uh, the social network. Social network. Very much so. Mark Zuckerberg in that scene is being like kind of a manic, autistic person almost. There was something about the way that Miles Teller delivered his breakup scene that was so measured and so honest. He was like, look, like all of these things are going to happen. I'm going to resent you because this is important to me and you're not going to understand it. And that's okay. I get that. But like he's so measured in the whole thing and he comes across as being a a complete a-hole. Right. But he's like thought through the whole process. He's not doing it on a whim in an emotional outburst. He's thought through this is what I have the mental capacity for. And this is what's important to me. These are my priorities. This is how I will now live my life. <laughs> There's something almost noble about it. Like he's thought it through. I'm going to zag here and say that was my least meaningful scene in the movie. Um, and I think the reason why is because the football scene is so organic of how he becomes horrible at first. It's sort of like he's trying to share what he did. Sure. And then they're kind of like needling at him. And then it comes out. Where in this scene, this girl that he likes... All of a sudden, he just goes and like decides to break up with her. And I think it's all the reasons that you said was because he had thought about it. But I was like, there's nothing that motivated it other than like it felt like Chazelle kind of pulling at the strings, which is like, okay, I also have to show that he has no room for love. And I thought it would have been more interesting if something would have motivated it or I mean, I don't know what it would have been that wouldn't have been on the nose. It just felt like, okay, we're checking another box. And that scene was great and his reasoning was great and it added to the theme. Yeah. But I didn't think it was as fleshed out as it could have been. And thankfully, like that scene is fleshed out into a 
wonderful two-hour movie called La La Land that deals with <laughs> that that whole scene is La La Land in a much more sophisticated and interesting and cute way. That is that is incredibly true. I, I thought I, I think that maybe I fully feel what you're saying there uh, about that scene. It did kind of come out of nowhere. I do like the fact that it was self-imposed. It gave him more agency in his own story. Like to me, it was right. like, oh, you're actively dismantling your life. Thought you're thoughtfully dismantling your own life. Right. Like this isn't like a person who's not in in control of his own emotions where he's just reacting. He's like thinking it through and making the decision to probably make the wrong decision, Um, which to me is like almost scarier. Right. It's like you're not going to take a break and and, and like calm down and realize, oh, I've made all these mistakes. You're doing this in a sober mind. You're making these decisions. Yeah, and for um, me, I'm more nitpicking here because I, I think that argument is there. And I do think, again, this movie is just so thin as far as, like, there's no fat. Like, this is, like, right. the, you know, this is the 98%, you know, like, muscle is what this movie is. There's no body fat. There's nothing you can take to the editing room. It's, like, every scene is necessary. Yeah. And that's the one where I was like, okay, we're just, like, checking a box a little bit, even though I think that's... It, even though if it would have been like he was hey you're not calling me back and that sort of thing like that would have been so much worse and so i don't know what i would have wanted instead sure. it was just something that i was like I, I think that dinner scene was so good and the fact of like that's how it really happens yeah. that i wanted something like that for the relationship where you know yeah. it happened and again that all comes from la la land that is true that is all la la land can i just say that melissa benoist the girl who plays the uh the girlfriend, Supergirl herself. Yes, um, that is that's who she is. Yeah, it's Supergirl. Um, for being someone who's just basically been on Glee and a long-running CW show, I think she gives a great performance in the three she- scenes that she's in. She's electric, man. I was I was trying to place her when I was watching the movie. I was like, how do I know her? And yeah. I was like, she's so good and so adorable. And when he's breaking up with her, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you will never do better than her. Right. She's amazing. She's so cute. And their first date scene is pretty awesome, too, where he's like, I'm laser focused. And she's like, I'm undeclared, you know, and just that sort of, you and, know, and it'll never work from the first scene between those two. Totally. But like. They're acting in that scene and the looks they give each other and everything that's in the subtext and their chemistry is what like sells that scene and makes you want it for them. It's not in the writing. It's not in the dialogue of that scene. All the dialogue like that relationship should have gone nowhere. And the way that it even continues at all is like them just as like actors leaning into whatever that attraction is. And like I think she sells that so well. So does he. I was like kind of bummed she wasn't in more of the movie because I was both of those main scenes she was in. I thought she was so good. Beautiful. Okay, well, we're getting near the end of the episode. This is now the meaning of the movie time. Andrew, this is your final argument to say anything that you haven't said or maybe just kind of bring it all together of like, what is the meaning of the movie Whiplash? I think the meaning of the movie is this is an artist who is basically putting his heart on screen for us all to look at, which is that it's a it's a person who is self-aware enough of the triumphant feeling of achieving your dreams and the devastation of what that often does to the relationships in your life and therefore your happiness in your own life um, and the idea that your dreams may never actually make you truly happy. Um, La La Land also does this beautifully. I feel like we should maybe do a La La Land podcast because it talks about we that should. as far as like love. Um, but like, I think it does all of that and shows the sort of two paths that your life can take through this idea of maybe the mentor character not even being an external force, but maybe a uh, an embodiment of sort of that internal voice in, in, in your head that says everything should die in your life except for one single pursuit. Um, and the uh, yeah, I think it's it's this crazy combination of triumph and destruction when you get singularly um, dedicated to one thing. Yeah, I like that <laughs> kind of triumph and destruction. I, I think for me, um, this is a movie about greatness 
And I know a lot of drummers who are like, oh, this is not accurate of what drumming is. This is not a movie about drumming. This is a movie laser focused on greatness and what sort of outside forces it takes to be great and what sort of inside forces it takes to be great. And as Americans, as people, as pop culture fans, we are fans of greatness. We are fans of Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and Steve Jobs and, you know, just these great people who change the world. But what is also true in almost all those names that I just said is there is this dark underbelly to it of like just becoming so great and chasing it and making it your whole life that there is like this bus of carnage of just run over bodies and run over dreams and run over people and even your own soul being stretched thin that takes it maybe as human beings we're not designed to become our own gods and uh that may be too strong but i think that's <laughs> kind of what this idea is it's just like greatness at all costs is sometimes what it takes for greatness but sometimes isn't worth the price that we pay and i think that's the big idea that this movie wrestles with and i love that it doesn't give a single meaning answer it, yeah. it kind of ends with a big symbol crash and it says okay you wrestle through it in your own heart and mind and soul and you figure it out for yourself and yeah. it gives us the respect to wrestle through that and i think that's what makes this movie so meaningful and worth watching and thinking more deeply about I absolutely agree with that. I love how you called back just now to an episode that we recorded an entire year ago. I don't know if you remember this, but um, you said that this is a movie that is not about drumming because no one learns how to drum this way. Uh, when we recorded our uh, podcast about Coda over a year ago, and I said, mm. these are the worst, the worst voice lessons ever put to screen. No one learns how to sing this way. You said, ah, that's right. Also, Whiplash, in, in that podcast, everyone should go listen to our podcast about Coda. Um, uh, you also uh, talked about Whiplash being a, a movie that was bad about drumming. Uh, so I did. Um, that's so, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't yeah. listen to these podcasts, so I should go listen back and listen to them. We recorded that podcast almost exactly a year ago today. So, you know, we just keep uh, hitting on these uh, bad music lesson. Uh, about once a year, uh, we'll do a bad music lesson movie. Yeah, I do. I think sometimes, you know, movies about writing, that's probably what I know the most about. And so movies about writing show them in a storm and they're writing and sweating and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, that's not what it means to write, but it it's what it feels like. Yeah. And it's like, OK, this isn't what it means to drum. Like it doesn't actually sweat or whatever else like that. But it's like it is what feels like to like bleed for something because right. you love it so much. And yeah, that's the and idea that they picked an instrument that might feasibly cause you to bleed if you work, if you like got calluses and did it hard enough, right? Like there's no version of playing the saxophone that would ever cause you to bleed. Like I figure, I feel like they picked drumming on purpose because he was the one feasible instrument that might create that level of physical exertion. Right. <laughs> right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, good, man. good, solid movie. Uh, just, I mean, I, I feel like I said about 72% of what I wanted to say about this movie um, because, as we've often said on this podcast, it is very hard. Stories can often say the meaning of something and can paint a picture about an emotion and an idea, uh, a spiritual reality, an emotional reality in a way that normal conversation can't. And I think in movies like this that mean so much to the two of us, um, we often struggle to feel like we've said enough about them because I feel like the story itself and telling it through a story does it best. So if what we've said kind of checks out for you or feels like something that you might resonate with, definitely watch the movie because I'm telling you it'll resonate with you a thousand percent more than what I, either of us were able to say because that's what stories can do. Yeah, this is a movie that you feel more than you think about you feel it as you're watching and then when it's over you have to be like what just happened and that's why i love doing this podcast and talking about it is because even though i could never articulate uh do justice to what is actually happening on screen this is still not a movie that you should just watch and then walk away from and like okay what's next on my cue you should turn it off go on a long walk and think about what this movie is and what it's trying to say absolutely oh thanks for uh doing this one man i'm glad that we got to talk about it yeah, this was fun. Well, good job, Andrew. Everyone, thanks for listening. We're going to have more meaningful movies in the future. Until then, like, subscribe, review. We love reviews. Uh, reach out to us. And then we'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie. Bam, 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 bam.
Bow, bow, bow. Nice.